We're going to be back in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. The last time I was in Ephesians, we sort of did Ephesians 2 verses 1, 4, and 5. And so today we're going to go back and focus in on verses 2 and 3. So I will read a bit of the section here. We need to go back a bit to get some context. We'll go back to verse, let's see, verses 15 to 23 is like one sentence, so I guess we got to go back to 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Period. That was one sentence. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now into chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we get into it, let's review where we have been. Last time I was up here, we took a little detour to the Sermon on the Mount. It was the time before that that we started Ephesians chapter 2. And the thing I wanted to draw to your attention out of verse 1 was that the phrase, dead in the trespasses and sins, is not itself a statement about man's ability or man's nature. Remember, Paul begins here by contrasting now the work of Christ, which he expounds upon in chapter 1, with who we are and the judgment that is upon us apart from Christ. So when Paul says, you were dead, he's making a statement about how we relate to God's justice. Dead is a judgment. It is a due penalty. It is what the law requires, right? We spoke at length about God's justice 
Justice is a part of God's nature. God loves justice. He is a God of justice. And the demand of the law is that when you violate the law, you die. And so when Paul says you were dead, he's saying that the judgment of God was upon you. This was a sentencing, a just and due payment for your thoughts and actions. And then Paul explains that the sins and trespasses are the reason for this judgment, the things that we have done to earn it. But in the same way, over in verse 5, Paul declares that even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were under the judgment of God for our sins, it says that he made us alive together with Christ. And so in the same way, alive together with Christ is primarily a statement about our relationship to God and his justice. Just as dead is a judicial sentencing for what we have done, so alive is a judicial sentencing for what Christ has done. Rather than the just judgment that we deserve for our sins, We are instead given the life that is the reward of perfect righteousness. Not on account of our own righteousness, but on account of Christ's righteousness. And so these things are about how we relate to God in his justice and in his mercy. But Paul spent some time in verses 2 and 3 here in chapter 2 talking about who we are and what we do. And so last time we talked all about the economy of justice and the economy of grace and the work of Christ. And so we're going to spend some time this week talking about our works, the things that we have done before we knew Christ and the things that we do after we know Christ. And so as I move forward today, there are going to be two ideas, two concepts, two principles that Scripture seems to hang in the balance. We can take these two ideas and run too far with one of them and fall into error. These are the ideas of obedience and grace. Right, we know that grace, the meaning of the word is that you didn't earn it. The meaning of the word is that you can't earn it. Whereas obedience means that you go and you do something, right? So we have these two ideas that, in some contexts, may seem to be in opposition. But in the gospel, we will see their perfect marriage. And so at the heart of the gospel, there is both an unconditional and freely given forgiveness of all disobedience, There is also a promised preparation for undertaking an indispensable command of obedience. We must have both of these things. Grace given freely by God the Father. Grace given unconditionally by God the Father. And yet, the word that we have been given is full of instructions. Things for us to do. And so 
Over the years, James and I have joked that the position that we occupy is one that makes both the antinomian and the legalist upset. We sort of find that balance that Scripture sets up for us. So antinomianism, that's a really big word, right? When I say the word antinomianism or antinomian, what I'm talking about is someone who believes that Scripture does not contain instructions or that the instructions of Scripture are in some way optional. They are suggestions. They are guidance, ways to make your life easier, but it's okay if you disobey them. That is antinomianism. We are free to live in sin because those sins are already forgiven. And on the other side of this false gospel coin, we have legalism, that somehow we must earn God's favor through some act of good works or that we must somehow motivate God's mercy through some exercise of our will. We have antinomianism and legalism. And the way we get to each of those is by taking these ideas of grace and obedience and running too far away from the other. Legalism, any gospel, any message that has you earning something, earning mercy, earning grace, any call or invitation to believe that is framed as though God is waiting for you to do something, as though his hands were tied until you have untied your own. This is legalism. We'll see some examples of what this really looks like in our culture and in the church. But just as we can fall into this era of legalism, requiring works, requiring some sort of performance, requiring some sort of exercise of the will to merit the grace of God, we can take this idea of free and sovereign grace and run too far away from the obedience that Scripture teaches. Any declaration of so-called sovereign grace that somehow absolves the people of God from any and all expectation of obedience to the commands of Christ is this antinomianism. These things are equal and opposite schemes of the devil that are created to deceive us. So, we will get into verses 4 and 5 first. We have a pretty clear and explicit rejection here of antinomianism. Nope, legalism first. Legalism has the clear and explicit rejection here in Ephesians chapter 2. First, we see in verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now we talked before that this word grace should by itself exclude any work that we might perform, right? But there are some observations we can make here in verse 4 that 
um, further solidify this point. First, we observe who is acting. Who is the subject of this sentence? Who is the one doing the verbs, right? But God. But God, and then we have a comma, and then we have an aside, and then the actual verb for this sentence, but God, occurs halfway through verse 5. But God made us alive together with Christ. So first we see that it was God who made us alive together with Christ. And then we spent some time last week talking about how that happened, right? We spent some time talking about what God did. So we'll go over to Romans chapter 3. Right, so you remember that the law demands death for its violation. We remember that God is justice. Romans chapter 2, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. There's that antinomianism again. Presuming upon the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so we see that the law requires the judgment of God. Every single sin will be punished. And so in Romans 3, Paul will tell us, remember the law requires righteousness, and so Paul tells us where that righteousness comes from. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. So we spent some time talking about that word propitiation. Right, this propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath, the appeasement of God's justice. This was the word that I read out of the dictionary for. Remember? The pagan Greeks understood this word to talk about the things that they had to do to earn the favor of the pantheon, right? If you wanted to earn the favor of Hephaestus, the fire god. You might go and be a really good blacksmith or something, right? These were things that they had to do to earn the favor, to earn the appeasement, the propitiation of their false idols. And then the dictionary says, that's not how the Bible uses the word. At no point does scripture center the man 
on this word propitiation. The four times the word is used, it is talking about something that God has done to secure propitiation on behalf of his people. The satisfaction of wrath is something that Christ accomplishes. Redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And we see further here in Romans 3.25, this idea of God's justice always being fulfilled, right? Always being met. Remember I told you there is no sin that will go unpunished. So there in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What's he talking about there? What sins has he passed over? Remember the sins of his people before Christ, right? The people of God before the death of Christ were still sinners also, right? And so God, because he is a God of justice, must punish their sins. And so in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, we do not see the atonement of their sins, but we see a picture, a promise that God will atone for their sins. This is the divine forbearance Paul is talking about. God puts off the execution of his wrath for the sins of his people until Christ comes. And then on the cross, he for all time suffers the wrath of God for his people. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it is on the cross that we see the marriage of wrath and mercy. We see God's wrath poured out in an act of grace. An act of mercy. This is what God has done. So back in Ephesians 2, God has made us alive together with Christ. That is the how. Your sins deserve the wrath of God, and because God cannot forgive them without justice, He executes that justice against his own son. God the Son willfully, lovingly takes that wrath for his people. We often see preachers talk about what happened on the cross as if it was a plan B, as if maybe there was a better way, as if maybe God didn't see that part coming. Maybe the Romans... And the Pharisees surprised God. The prophet Isaiah would prophesy a thousand years before it happened that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is the how. How does this salvation happen? But Paul also gives us the reasons In verse 4, God is rich in mercy. God has loved us with a great love. The salvation is accomplished by God himself, and the reasons for it are found in God himself. 
Paul is here summarizing the whole of chapter 1. Right, everything we read in chapter 1 was about the work of God in Christ. It's all about what God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This love with which he has loved us was given to us before we were here, before our creation. In this love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Remember, what's that framework that I want us to keep coming back to in reading Scripture through? This covenant of redemption. This idea that God the Father and God the Son make a deal. God the Father gives to the Son a work to perform, and in exchange, the Son is given a bride, a people to call his own. And the work that he is given to perform is to make her clean. And it is in our marriage to Christ that we are adopted by the Father. We are sons and daughters of God through our marriage to Christ. This deal, this transaction, this covenant of redemption is something that happens in eternity past. And so there is nothing for us to do, right? There's nothing that we can contribute to it. And to make this more clear, we can observe that we are not even presented as participants in this. Here in this passage in chapter 2. We are not shown as participating in this redemption. The part that we play in this redemption is not stated. Instead, we are presented as, in a sense, potential legal obstacles to this transaction. Right? We are part of the problem. We present the reason Christ has to do the work. Right? Now, this is a rhetorical sense only. This is the argument that Paul is trying to make. He's not saying that we present any challenge to the Father for our salvation, right? But what does he say? You were dead in the trespasses and sins when she once walked. And then let's see, uh, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. The, The idea here is that Us being sinful makes a problem for forgiveness, right? Because God in his justice, because of his nature as justice, cannot just forgive us without satisfying his justice. And Paul says, even though our sin presents a problem for forgiveness, God has provided the solution for that problem in Christ, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were by nature children of wrath, even when we are sons of disobedience, even when we are not deserving of that love, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. Our unrighteousness and God's all-consuming justice must 
be accounted for. Our debt must be paid. And so, of course, this debt is paid by Christ on the cross. God is pleased in himself to execute his wrath against himself, to purchase a people for himself. And so this is the gospel, and it excludes any so-called gospel that is conditioned upon your good works. All right, how many times did I tell you that you have to do something here, that you participate in this redemption? No, it's a deal that the Son and the Father strike in eternity past. It's a work that the Son carries out. And this redemption is done because God chose to love his people. This excludes the false gospels of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's just a bunch of works that you have to do, a bunch of obedience that you have to do to earn the favor of God. They even have levels of heaven. Did you know that? If you're really, really, really good, you're like level number one. If you are chosen of 144,000, you're like level two. And if you were like sincere and did your best, you were level three. But it was all about your works. The gospel of the Mormons is the same way. If you are good enough, you get to become your own God and get your own planet. Yes, Mormonism is a sci-fi novel. You get your own planet, and if your telescope is strong enough, you can see God. Not making this up. The gospel of Roman Catholicism teaches the same thing. That some sins are too great for Christ to redeem, and others require absolution, require work, penance. And that as long as you are sincere and don't commit this list of sins, you can finish paying your debt for some number of years before you actually go to heaven. I was trying to think of other false gospels that might actually be relevant for me to talk to you about. I'm not going to tell you about things that you've never heard of. Um, But in this community, in the South, you might have heard of King James Onlyism. You might have encountered a church that believes that if you didn't read the gospel out of the King James, you didn't hear the gospel at all. Those things are out there. Something we have experienced here as a people, Grace Truth Church, this idea of doctrinal perfectionism. This is where you are so antinomian that you circle back around to legalism. There have been people within these walls who were so so far into this idea of sovereign and free grace that to even speak of obedience was to make you a false teacher, which is ironically legalism. See how that works? So against obedience that I legalistically require obedience to being against obedience. 
But Paul's teaching here, this rejection of legalism excludes any gospel call that makes us a participant in the completion of redemption. All right, this one was, is big also in the South. Pray this prayer. All you got to do, pray this prayer. And when you doubt your salvation, just, just think about that time you prayed that prayer. It's a real thing I have heard pastors say to people. How do I know I am saved? Well, if you weren't saved, you wouldn't have even thought to ask the question. No, our assurance, how do we know we are saved, is found in the faithfulness of Christ, right? God is waiting for you to have faith. No. <laughs> God has executed his plan of redemption in Christ, and he chose to love you before the foundation of the world. And everything works out according to his purposes in his time. He isn't waiting for anyone but himself. God does not wait for us. We also see this legalism played out in this idea that God knows who would have chosen him and chooses to love those people. I recently heard an analogy that God's election was like a train where the, the destination was predetermined and you have to choose to get on the train or not. But none of these ideas are consistent with the teaching of Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul tells us the part we play in this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. We'll get to this eventually. In verse 8, Paul just outright says, this is not your own doing. <laughs> you didn't do this. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Both the why and the how of redemption have nothing to do with you. Any gospel that includes you, your works, your words, your will, as an integral part of its function, is powerless to save. We even see this played out in the Old Testament, don't we? The prophet Ezekiel receives a vision. Sister Karen said she would be studying Ezekiel, and here we are. Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. The Lord said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? O oh, Lord God, you know. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. While you were dead in your trespasses and sins, the spirit of the Lord Preach the gospel of Christ to your heart. So I prophesied as I was commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and I breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That is us, church. When we were dead in our trespasses, the Lord breathed life into us. When we were a valley of dry bones, motionless, dead, destined to stay that way because bones stay bones, except that the Spirit of the Lord breathes life into you. A dead man does not will himself to live. But being dead in your sins and trespasses poses no challenge for the creator of the universe. It poses no obstacle for the love of God that he has for his people and has had before the foundation of the world. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I shall bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Who did all the stuff? The Lord. So this rejection of legalism should be clear. The rejection of antinomianism is a little more subtle here. It's a little bit more subtle. And we can see it in the way Paul shapes his argument. We can see it in the rhetoric. What we see is that there's an obvious contrast in Paul's argument. And without recognizing and acknowledging the contrast that Paul is drawing here, nothing he's saying really makes sense. Remember last time we were here, I did this little dance where I said, we've got two groups of people here, right? I'm going to do the dance again. And you, I'm going to put the church over here. I'm going to prove to you that there's something different about the people of God. 
you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Right, here's you. You were dead. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all used to live, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You need to pay special attention to the past tense here, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, right? We said that that's a legal declaration, but verse 2, in which you once walked. We used to, in the past, walk in our trespasses and sins. We used to follow the course of this world. Right? This means that we used to go about the way the culture does. We used to believe the same thing that our culture believes. We used to act the same way the culture acts. We used to follow the prince of the power of the air. Paul makes... No bones about saying that you followed Satan. <laughs> right? And that's the truth of it, right? We've got this picture of, you know, Satanism from all. You've got your, your dumb horror movies where, you know, someone's demon-possessed or there's this group, this cult, this satanic cult, worshiping pictures of goats. Paul says that Satanism, worshiping the devil, is... Anything that isn't worshiping Christ. It is who you were before God saved you. You used to follow the prince of the power of the air. And Satan used to be at work in you because you were a son of disobedience. There's one famous Bible character who is called a son of disobedience. Judas Iscariot, right? And we always... You like to think, I'm not as bad as Judas. I didn't sell Jesus for a bag of change. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. Apart from Christ, we follow Satan. Paul describes the way we live, the passions of our flesh. All right, now that you're in Christ, now that you have your eyes open and that by the power of the Spirit, you have been tuned into the things that you do, right? You know when something you are doing is sinful, right? James and I speak frankly about the thoughts that we have, the things that are inside that we maybe don't let out, right? And I have said to James many times, maybe this is my flesh thinking this way. Because I want James to tell me if this is my flesh thinking this way. I walk him through my thought process. Is this of God or is this my flesh? Right? We know that our spirit is at war with our flesh. But we used to just live in the passions of our flesh. 
right? Because we were dead. We used to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. We did what we wanted to. We lived how we wanted to, right? And Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath. The core of our being was to be subject to the wrath of God. Our very nature was to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in case the contrast wasn't strong enough, he says, like the rest of mankind, the church is different. There's something different about us. So where verses 1 and 5 talk about our judicial relationship with God, verses 2 and 3 are talking about us, who we are, what we do. Paul makes it abundantly clear that something changes in us, about us, and our behavior when God executes redemption in us. It's the only way we can make sense of this contrasting language, right? It's the only way we can make sense of this dichotomy that Paul is setting up for us here in chapter 2. We are someone else, someone different from the rest of the world. Not just inwardly that we've been legally declared righteous, but outwardly. Something about us outwardly looks different. And we're going to talk about it. Now, Pastor Trey, this seems like a lot of work to make a point when you could just read Romans 6. Good idea. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Here in Romans chapter 6, we see this marriage of these two seemingly opposed ideas. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Paul's asking the same question again. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
of the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, we will get to it in a little while, but Paul gives us some instruction about this obedience in verse 10. He tells us how it happens, how to understand it, the perspective to have about it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what did I say about the gospel? Let me find it in my notes. It's on page one. Hmm. At the heart of the gospel, there is an unconditional and freely given forgiveness of all disobedience. Right? We reject legalism. There is a promised preparation for the undertaking of an indispensable command of obedience. The Lord is faithful to prepare us and to prepare for us good works. Okay, so the Bible tells you what to do. What are we supposed to do with that? My outline, I called this enforcing expectations. These are commands, right? Scripture tells us how to live. The commands of Christ are just that, commands. They're not suggestions. They're not life pro tips. They are not optional. So how do we hang these requirements, these commands, in the balance with this grace that is free? Well, thankfully, Scripture does not leave it to my discretion to enforce any of these expectations on you, right? Scripture does not give me as a Christian judicial liberty over enforcing the commands of Christ as I see fit. Scripture does not give me as your pastor liberty to enforce the commands of Christ as I see fit. It does give me responsibility over disciplining my own children, right? But even then, I must discipline my own children within the bounds of the biblical wisdom given to me as a father. Instead, Scripture gives clear instructions for enforcing these biblical expectations through the exercise of church discipline, as described in Matthew 18. your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven heaven. So just as the commands of Christ aren't optional, 
this handling of sin, these instructions for dealing with sin in the body of Christ are not optional. Right? And this is broad guidance, right? There's some discretion given to the elders of the church with regard to timing and other specifics of its handling. But this general model must be followed. Now, what do we get out of this? We get out of this church discipline the only thing resembling a measuring stick for good works ever given in Scripture. Right? You can't look to your behavior, your good works for assurance. Mostly because if you're honest with yourself, you're probably not measuring up, right? But even if you are pretty good, Scripture doesn't tell you how to measure that. I've used this question. It's a, it sounds silly, but that's intentional. There's this question I ask to people who talk about looking to your good works for your assurance, and that is how much good works is enough good works? To know that you've done enough good works, to have assurance of your not good works-based salvation. It's supposed to be confusing. The answer is that Scripture doesn't give us any sort of measuring stick like that, right? Scripture doesn't tell us how to find assurance in our own behavior. Except that in the discipline of the church, we are at one point told to regard them as a Gentile and a tax collector. If the discipline of the church has been carried out faithfully, According to the instructions of Christ, we may then and only then regard someone as a non-believer because of their behavior. Now, what's the point? What is the point of this church discipline? What is the point of enforcing expectations like this? We are one body, and if I come and I cut off your hand, you are going to be in tremendous pain. The commands of Christ are given to the church for her joy and for her peace. And this enforcement described in Matthew 18 is demanded to preserve that joy and that peace. And so, church, when I teach you about obedience, when I teach you about following the commands of Christ, I should do so in a way that magnifies Christ and magnifies your joy and your peace. If I teach obedience in good works to you in a way that causes you to look upon them and have assurance of your salvation, I have not magnified Christ. I have magnified you. And likewise, if I teach you obedience and I teach you how to follow the commands of Christ in a way that doesn't give you joy and peace, but gives you fear and restlessness. I have not given you the commands of Christ to the good of your joy and your peace. We are never instructed to measure our salvation against our works. Because we didn't do anything to earn it. Instead, we look upon Christ 
and we live. We look upon Christ and we have joy and peace. The assurance of your salvation is found in the faithful promises of the Lord. It is found in the power of God in the death of Christ. It is found in the power of God in the resurrection of Christ. It is found in the testimony of the Spirit to your spirit. And these commands for obedience are given for your joy, for our joy and for our peace. Not to be a burden, not to cause fear of judgment, but that we might live together peacefully as the people of God. That we might live joyfully in obedience to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is faithful, and we thank you for your spirit put within us to read and understand your word. God, we thank you that through this word we see and we know what Christ has done. We see your justice poured out on him for our sins. We thank you for your spirit put in us for obedience, enabling us and empowering us, giving us a love for your work. We pray that by that spirit, our peace and our joy would be magnified in Christ. Lord, as we take these elements, bless them, give them to us for peace and joy in our souls. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.